18. John 18, verses 12 through 27. The title of the message this morning is Before the Rooster Crows. Now, we always look at this and think that it's a message of about Peter's denial, but what, we, what we're going to discover this morning is the message about God's grace and his restoration. It is an amazing story. So let's dig into it this morning, beginning in verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So Jesus is arrested in the garden, and he's taken to the home of Annas first. And John and the other Gospels tell us that Peter is following this procession of the detachment of Roman soldiers and the temple guards. He is following Jesus at a distance all along the way here. So Jesus is led with his hands bound, just like a criminal. And, and I believe this is done for effect. You ever hear that term, the perp walk? You know, where they lead you out of the office building in handcuffs in front of everybody in front of all the news cameras? It, it's done for effect. And I think that the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are doing this for effect. They're saying, look at the one who claims to be the Messiah. We have him as our prisoner now. His hands are bound. We are in control, is what they're saying. We call the shots around here. So they bring Jesus first to Annas. Annas was, is the high priest. Notice John writes Caiaphas was the high priest that year. Under Levitical law, once the high priest is appointed, He's high priest for, anybody know? What length of time? Life. He's high priest for life. Caiaphas was appointed by the Romans. So he was the high priest that year. And if, you, if you're a student of history at all, you'll discover that Annas' sons had become high priests later on after Caiaphas. So it was up for grabs for anybody who wanted it. But according to Levitical law, the high priest served in that position for life. So there were those still in the Sanhedrin, there were those still amongst the temple guards who recognized Annas as the high priest. And so they brought Jesus to him first. Now, even though Caiaphas is the high priest this year, I can guarantee you that Annas has had a significant role in the planning of the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now John tells us that Caiaphas is the one who unwittingly predicts the reason Jesus is on trial when he says it's expedient that one man should die for the people. Now notice John says it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews. Now what John's referring to is something we studied back in chapter 11 where he said, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now it is, now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together 
and won the children of God who were scattered abroad. You see, the religious leaders may have thought that they were in control. They thought that they, because they had the hands of Jesus bound, that they had the upper hand. Because they were leading him to his death, they thought they had the last say in all of this. They considered that the, Jesus, it was Jesus' defeat on the cross. They, de, they considered that a defeat of Jesus Christ when he went to the cross and died on the cross. But we know that it's victory for all those who believe in him. That defeat was turned into victory. The only reason they could do what they were doing, the only reason Jesus' hands are bound, is because Jesus knew that this was the only way. Jesus was allowing this. That he, he knew that he had to die for the people so that all who believed in him would live. And so this is no longer just a centralized Jewish event. This, what was about to happen, is going to have a profound effect on the entire world. And Peter, Peter has a courtyard seat, if you will, for the plan of God, that plan of his salvation for the whole world. Peter's got a courtyard seat to this plan being unveiled. And Simon Peter, verse 15, followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Peter follows Jesus, and John tells us that he's with another disciple. So there's some debate on who this other disciple is. Some scholars believe it's Nicodemus. Some scholars believe it's Joseph of Arimathea. And so both of those gentlemen would have certainly been known to the high priest. But some also say, and I believe, that this is John himself. In chapter 20... John refers to himself as the other disciple. John never refers to himself by name. He calls himself the other disciple. And then he says, it was the, Peter goes to the tomb, the empty tomb, with the other disciple. It's John. And so that's why I believe this is John. John is the one who goes into the courtyard with Peter. So how is John known to the high priest? That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Until you look at John's background. John's mother was Salome. Salome is related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. What's the connection between Mary and Elizabeth? Cousins. Who was Elizabeth's husband? Zachariah. Zachariah was what? A priest in the temple. So John has connections to the priest in the temple. He has family connections. Possible that the high priest and all the priests know John because of his family connections. So John is able to gain not only access into the courtyard, but I believe he's also able to gain access into Annas' home. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. So they're at the door of the courtyard, and this leads, this courtyard leads into the home of Annas. And John, who's familiar with the servant girl who's at the gate, is let in. So John's already in the courtyard. And at some point he notices that Peter's not right behind him or Peter's not next to him. So he goes back to the girl and he's trying to get Peter in. Now, why did Peter lie behind? Maybe he was anxious about going in. We don't know. Maybe he's concerned that he too would be arrested. Although John didn't seem to have a problem with apprehension. 
He goes right in. We have no idea what Peter was feeling, but because Peter is made of flesh the same as we are, we can take an educated guess to what's going through his mind. And we certainly tell by the answer that he gives the servant girl that he's fearful. He's fearful of something. And that brings us to Peter's first denial that day in the courtyard. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? So she let John in. She must have known John was a disciple of Jesus. And so if there was any reason to think that the disciples were wanted as well, then John would have been in danger, wouldn't he? It doesn't appear that he was because he goes right in and it doesn't seem to be a problem. He's allowed right into the courtyard. Nobody's thrown the handcuffs on him yet. But Peter's still standing out there. And the servant girl asks him, aren't you one of his disciples also? She knows John is, so if Peter's with John, then it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good assumption that Peter also is one of Jesus' disciples. And so Peter says, to, in answer to that question, I am not. I am not his disciple. Now, this is the first of three denials that Peter would make that night. In the Greek, that word deny means to disown or to reject. Peter is separating himself from Jesus. And his actions this night will prove that. Now, he could have gone in with John, and he could have stood with Jesus. Instead, he stays behind and stands with the world. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. So John goes back and forth, and I love the way he does this. He goes back and forth from the trial to the courtyard. And I believe he writes this way for a very specific reason. He's kind of juxtaposing this trial and, and what's going on in the courtyard, because, listen, they are simultaneously going on. Well, Jesus is on trial inside the home of Annas for saying, I am. Peter's in the courtyard saying, I don't know. While Jesus is standing firm on the word of God, Peter's in the courtyard denying Jesus, denying ever knowing. Peter thinks the, wall, the walls of the courtyard are somehow <laughs> hiding his denial from Jesus. And I believe that Jesus knows and feels every single denial that Peter makes. We sometimes forget who Jesus is, don't we? We think that our sinful actions, which, by the way, deny Jesus, we think that somehow when we act sinfully, our sinful behavior is somehow hidden from his sight. But I believe he knows and feels every time we act or speak in a way that denies him. Now, to fully understand Peter's actions that night, we have to go back to before the arrest in the garden. We have to look at what Peter, what was said to Peter and his response to kind of get an idea, feel of where Peter's heart was this night. So Jesus says to his, his disciples, he says, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So Peter and the rest of the disciples, well, let me ask you this. If you heard those words of Jesus, what would be the thing you focused on? Hopefully it would be, when I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. 
But his disciples and Peter missed that whole part of it. Had Peter focused on those words instead of what Jesus said about them being scattered, he may have reacted completely different to this whole situation. But Peter was stuck because of pride maybe in his heart. Peter was stuck about what Jesus said about the sheep being scattered, including Peter, and that they would stumble that very night. Now, Peter, the bold, brash, proud disciple, says in response to the words of Jesus, he says, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Think about what he's saying here for a minute. Those other guys, you guys right there, you, you'll all stumble, but not me. Not me. I'm, I'm Peter. I'm Peter. I'm not going to stumble. These guys will because they're weak. I'm Peter, I'm strong, right? Isn't that a little prideful, that statement? What does the Bible say about pride? Pride goes before the fall. And Peter is about to fall, and he's about to fall hard. Jesus says to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Matthew 26, 33. So Jesus predicts that Peter is going to deny knowing him this very night. But Peter just can't believe that he will turn his back on Jesus. So he says, even if I had to die with you, I will not deny you. I just won't. I'm not going to deny you. You're wrong about this, Lord. I love it. He reminds me so much of me. Peter would die with Jesus before he would ever deny knowing who Jesus is. Now listen, those words are easy to say, aren't they? Until they're put to the test. Underneath all that bravado, Peter's fearful this time. Yes, he's shown what some may call bravery as he lops off the ear of the, the temple guard servant. But I think that's just because Jesus was there. You know, Jesus has got Peter's back and all. A lot braver, you know. Listen, growing up, I wasn't a stranger to fighting. And you seem to have a lot more confidence going into that when you got a six-foot guy behind you, you know what I mean? 300-pound guy behind you. So I, I'm thinking, Peter's thinking, Jesus has got my back. Jesus is going to back me up when I make this play here because this is going to be the beginning of Jesus's reign on this earth. He's going to set up his kingdom. His kingdom is going to be established. And I'm going to set this all in motion. But when Jesus went along, without a fight, without a word, I believe that took the wind out of Peter's sails. And it put doubt in his mind. So when the time came, when he was face to face with the possibility of Peter being possibly arrested, possibly being put on trial, and this is all possible because or a probability in his mind, because none of this is fact, none of this comes to play in, in any of the gospel accounts. But in his own mind, he's thinking, there's a possibility I could be arrested, I could be put on trial, and there's a possibility that I could be put to death as an enemy of Rome. And so he is going to deny knowing Jesus rather than face all of that, even if it's just a possibility. And we can say we would die for we could say we would go to prison for Christ. We could say we would face persecution for Christ or even be treated unfairly for Christ. But 
how we react to that situation when faced the reality, none of us really know how we would react to that situation, do we? I don't know how I would react if faced with that reality of actually having to die for Christ or being persecuted or unjustly treated in the name of Christ. None of us can honestly say with any certainty that we know that we know that we know that we react in a certain way, can we? But I can tell you this. The time to make a stand for Jesus is before we're faced with any kind of reality like that. Like Daniel, who purposed in his heart long before he ever stood before the king of Babylon that he would not eat of the king's delicacies and defile himself and make himself unclean in the eyes of God. Daniel, at 16 years old, had purposed in his heart long before that day ever came. He purposed in his heart that even if it meant death for him, he would not defile himself in God's eyes. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had purposed in their heart long before they were ever in that burning, fiery furnace that they would serve the Lord their God no matter what. And I can tell you this with all certainty, that dying for Christ begins with dying to self. If you love this world more than you love Jesus Christ, you won't want to leave it. Even if that means denying Jesus to stay. And please allow me to say this. The love of this world is a denial of Jesus. John wrote that the love of this world means the love of the Father is not in us. James wrote that friendship with this world is enmity with God. To love this world system makes us hostile. God. To be of this world, to be part of this world, is to deny Jesus. And that's exactly where Peter finds himself this night, standing with the world. He's warming himself on this cold night by the enemy's fire. Peter's taking comfort in the world. Now, this seems harmless enough, doesn't it? I mean, he's only warming himself. It's cold. He's warming himself. It seems harmless enough. And listen, backsliding into the back into the world always happens by us justifying our sin. But there's a process to backsliding. It begins way before that. Peter is warned, he's warned, not warned, he's warned by Jesus that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. So Peter had warning. Not only did he have a warning, he has a time frame. He knew what would happen that night. He knew what was going to happen before the rooster crowed. Now you would think that he'd recognize these steps. He'd think that he'd recognize what's going on here. He'd think that he'd recognize this slippery slope that he's about to go down. So what happened? His pride. His pride. His pride that said, I'll stand with you, Jesus, no matter what. I'll go, I'll go to my death for you, Jesus. It begins with pride. Many of us have said in our heart, Jesus, I will stand for you no matter what. But then when the time comes, we fail. I, I, even though we mean well, we mean it when we say, Jesus, I'll stand for you. And I believe Peter means that here. I believe Peter means everything he says. Yes, Lord, I will stand with you no matter what. But what Peter failed to, fail to recognize, what we fail to recognize often, is that we're weak. In the flesh, and that's where his downfall begins with weakness. And we see that in the garden, don't we? Peter was asleep. And it all began, I believe, in the garden when Peter is sleeping when he should have been watching and praying. 
He should have been praying that his faith would remain strong. Remember, Jesus told him that night that, Pete, that Satan had asked to sift him like wheat. Jesus doesn't tell Peter that he told Satan no. Jesus simply tells Peter that I pray that your faith does not fail. Peter's faith is failing this way. Satan is sifting him like wheat. Satan is sifting some of us like wheat right now. Are we praying? Are we watching? Are we praying that our faith won't fail through this? That our faith will actually come out stronger because of this sin? That should be our prayer. Second, we see that Peter's following at a distance. For three years, Peter followed Jesus. Many times he's right by Jesus' side. Jesus he goes with Jesus. It's Peter, James, and John, right? Jesus takes him to places that the others don't go. So Peter's right by his side. But this night... This night, he's following Jesus at a distance. And listen, the further we drift away from Jesus, the weaker our faith becomes. Are you still walking by the side of Jesus? Or do you find yourself following him in the distance? Listen, it's never too late to catch up. It's never too late to, to draw near to him again. So we begin to see this spiraling, spiraling downward of Peter, a spiral that didn't just happen it was a process involved. And the third thing that happened to Peter is that he was deceived by the world around him. John records that Peter's coming into the courtyard and he stands by the fire to get warm. He stands there after he's already denied being a disciple of Jesus. And listen, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're a disciple of the world. You're being taught by someone. And Peter finds himself here in the wrong place with the wrong people at the wrong time and he's standing with the world. That reminds me of Psalm 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Peter is standing with the ungodly. He's with those who don't know Jesus, who don't follow Jesus. Peter's standing with a group of non-believers. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't stand with or associate with non-believers, how else are we going to witness them? Well, we have to be careful because the Bible tells us that bad company, not the group, bad company corrupts good morals. Peter's standing in the company of the world, and instead of boldly taking a stand here for Jesus Christ and affirming that he is a disciple of Jesus, because this is a great opportunity for Peter to witness to these people, he denies even being a disciple. And listen, that's what can happen to us when we stand in the company of the world. We can become more like the world and less like Jesus. We can leave doubt in the minds of the people around us that we are even a disciple of Jesus. Now listen, I think this is a good time to point out, before we get too hard on Peter, that Jesus had not yet breathed on them to receive the Holy Spirit. That happens after the resurrection. Remember, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come when? Leaves. Pentecost had not taken place yet. The Spirit had not come down upon the disciples. So Peter is acting and reacting in his flesh. He's not walking in the Spirit. He's not yet a new creation. His actions in the flesh then become understandable for us because we all have our BC days, right? At a time in our life before we knew Jesus Christ, before we were empowered by the Holy Spirit. What's so great about this story is we get to see Peter 
and the change that comes upon him after he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We see Peter after the resurrection. We see him delivering some of the most powerful sermons that we have recorded in the Bible. We hear him proclaiming Jesus as Lord, taking that stand for Jesus. What a testimony Peter's life has become. But as every powerful testimony, every powerful testimony that we have of the Holy Spirit working through us, there's also a backstory of how we lived our lives once in the flesh. And the story of our sin and failure. So for every victory story, being empowered by the Spirit, there's also that backstory, And that's kind of what we want to hear from you guys. What the Lord, where you came from and what the Lord is doing in your life now. The life of Peter has become an awesome demonstration for us of the grace of God. In his flesh, we see Peter here in a downward spiral. And that spiral, as we know, happens in steps. Sin always begins with a series of steps, doesn't it? Normally, we don't just want to pull out headlong into sin. It always happens in little steps. Before we know it, we look around and say, how did I get here? Slowly, step by step is how we got here. In Peter's case, it began with prayer. It began with either prophet, prayerlessness, distance, and deceit. And sadly, this is not the end of his downward spiral. He was gonna, he's going to continue as this line goes on to the down even further. So at this point in our text, John takes us back inside the home of Annas, into the room where Jesus is on trial for his life. And a trial, by the way, that already has a foregone conclusion, doesn't it? Because Caiaphas said it should be expedient that one man should die rather than the nation. So Jesus is already declared guilty and sentenced to death by the religious leaders before this trial ever takes place. The high priest, verse 19, then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where the Jews always met. And in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. So Annas wants to know what Jesus taught and who were Jesus' disciples. I think he wants to know just how far all of this is spread. He has no idea, does he? He has no idea. Annas, it is spread all the way to today, to this church and thousands of others just like us every Sunday across this, across the world. And it's going to continue to spread until Jesus Christ comes back. That's how far it's spread. Notice Jesus never gives up his disciples. He simply doesn't answer the question. However, he does ask the question about what he taught. And he says, I, I've been teaching in the open. I haven't said anything wrong. Every doctrine, everything I've taught has been in the open. There's no secret doctrine. There's no hidden agenda here. I have spoken the truth, and I've spoken the truth for the whole world to hear. So Annas, I think, is fishing here. He's fishing. He hopes that through these questions, Jesus is going to incriminate himself somewhere. But Jesus can incriminate himself because he has nothing to hide. He's done nothing wrong. He is not guilty. And he knows that Annas has nothing on him. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? And Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Jesus asked a very reasonable question. What did I do to deserve being slapped in the face? 
Any of us would ask that question, right? Jesus didn't say anything against that. He simply stated the truth. Maybe it was the truth that was so offensive. It certainly causes some unwanted responses even to this day, doesn't it? Because many don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear the truth because the truth shines a light on their lifestyle. We know the truth. We know that the truth has set us free. But sadly, there's many who prefer to remain in the bondage of the lie. So Annas is frustrated. He can't get Jesus to incriminate himself. He can't get Jesus to give up his disciples. So he sends them along his way to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And John goes back to Peter in the court. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, Are you not also one of his disciples? Are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now all four Gospels describe his denial. Matthew tells us he responds by saying, I do not know the man. And basically, that's exactly what he's saying when he says, I'm not his disciple, right? He is denying Jesus. He's denying what Jesus taught him. He's denying what Jesus showed him. He's denying the whole three years that he spent with Jesus. He's denying that that ever happened. Peter has presented another opportunity here. And in fact, he's given three opportunities this very night, right? Three opportunities to correct this downward downward spiral that he's on. Now perhaps he thought that by saying he was not a disciple of Jesus in the very beginning, that that was going to let him off the hook. That no one else was going to pursue this. That he was free and clear now. That he's going to be left alone. That he's being sifted like wheat. And I still don't think that's something that his hand. The enemy's at work. The enemy's removing that outer shell. He's attempting to destroy people who are. And what's emerging as that shell's being stripped away? Yes, the man who loved Jesus. I believe that Peter loved Jesus very much. But what's emerging is a man who's proclaiming the strength who's really weak on the inside. He's fearful of what might happen to him. He isn't as confident in his faith as he's proclaimed to be. And that's what the enemy does to us. He attacks our weaknesses and he attacks our faith. So let's look at those two attacks the areas that he attacks us in. First, our weaknesses. Let me just say this, that weakness is not a sin. Weakness is not a sin. Jesus knew what it was like to experience weakness in the flesh. The author of Hebrews writes, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. What was Jesus' response to those times of weakness? He prayed. He prayed. And we see a perfect example of that in the garden. When Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, Father. He prayed. And through his prayer, he was strengthened by God to endure what he was about to endure. Where weaknesses can lead to sin is when we don't recognize our weaknesses and we have this false sense of confidence that I have this. I can handle this. I won't stumble. I won't fall. I can deal with this. Not me. This isn't going to happen to me. Ever said that? Ever said that just before exactly what you said is not going to happen to you? I haven't seen you. The enemy sees our overconfidence. And he then uses that overconfidence to tempt us to do the very thing that we say we will never do. He's looking for those weak places. He's looking for those breaches in this, this wall 
It's looking for our weaknesses and our perceived strength. The only strength we have is what we think we have up here, right? It's not a physical strength that the enemy's attacking. And sometimes that physical strength we do use to help us through, right? It's that mental strength, that mental toughness that he goes after the most. The weak person sees that danger. He sees his weaknesses, and he cries out for help, or he flees from that danger. The strong, overconfident person thinks they can overcome that temptation in their own strength. And so they don't cry out for help, and they don't flee. Paul had a physical weakness, a physical weakness that prevented him from exalting himself. Remember, Paul also was this proud Pharisee of Pharisees, this Jew of Jews, this rabbi of rabbis. He, he was exalted at one point in his life, but God brought him down to where he could use him amazingly throughout the Gospels. So listen to what Paul would later write in the lesson that he learned in his weakness. At least I should be, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul learned that in his weaknesses, in this particular weakness, and some, some scholars think it was his, his bad eyesight, that someone who loved to read could barely see any longer. We don't know for sure. I kind of think it is, but that weakness, in that weakness, God's strength was made perfect in his life. In other words, people knew that it was God working through Paul, not Paul doing this in his own strength. Prayer for us, prayer for anyone, is an admission of our weakness. It's saying to God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I need your help. Peter didn't pray in the Bible, even though Jesus warned him that flesh is weak, to enter into prayer, because otherwise you're going to enter into temptation. Peter's problem was that he didn't recognize his weakness. He didn't think he had any weaknesses. Peter relied on his own strength. See, people who know their weaknesses, who recognize their weaknesses, flee from their temptation, like Joseph. Or they cry out for strength, like Jesus God said, come to my throne room of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to what? To help in our time of need. When we're being tempted, do we need God to give us strength to help us do that? We need his mercy. We need his grace. We, that is a time when we absolutely, we need him all the time, but we need him even more during those periods of time, don't we? We need his strength to help us overcome that temptation before it leads to sin. Peter didn't seek that he didn't watch. He didn't pray. He didn't pray for strength. And the second area the enemy attacks us in is our faith. Superman is almost unstoppable. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. And Superman wasn't so unstoppable, was he? He had a weakness. Kryptonite. Just a little bit of kryptonite made a weak. Too much kryptonite would destroy him. Someone once said that unbelief is the Christian's 
Little unbelief certainly weakens us. Too much, and it will destroy us. When Satan asked to sift Peter like we, Jesus told Peter, I will pray that your faith remain strong, that it will not fail. The enemy attacks our faith because he knows that nothing can stop a Christian with spirit-empowered faith. Nothing can stop him or her from sharing their faith. Even death can't stop us from proclaiming our faith in Christ. Think about that. We still read about Christians, great men and women of faith, who were martyred for their faith, don't we? Those stories still inspire us, still encourage us. Their death didn't silence their witness. So it makes sense that the enemy would attack our faith like he did with Peter. So how could Peter have resisted this attack against his weaknesses and against his faith? How can we resist those attacks? First, Look to the source of our faith. Peter was taught this early on, but he forgot this lesson. When Peter stepped out of the boat on the Sea of Galilee, he walked on water as long as he kept his eyes on who? Jesus. When he took his eyes off Jesus, he sank. So the first step we have to take is we have to keep our focus on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The second is to pray. Jesus warned Peter to pray, and that same warning, warning extends to us. Pray. And you listen, there's going to be times when you don't feel like praying. Maybe today is one of those days. Those are the times when we need to pray even more. Paul wrote to the Colossians, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. He wrote to the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing and everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of Jesus for Peter, that he prayed. This is the will of Jesus for you and I, that we pray. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. When we enter into that throne room of grace, we enter into it to ask for strength to resist temptation. Don't let your pride from that throne of grace. Don't let your pride cause you to fall and stumble. And then thirdly, in weakness, there is strength. Remember, we're weak. There's no sin in being weak. But it's our weakness that makes the strength of God perfect in us. We can do all things, Paul wrote to the Philippians, through Christ who strengthens us. So lean on him. We don't lean on our own strength. We don't lean on our own understanding. We acknowledge that we're weak. We acknowledge that we're weak and he's strong, that we can't do this without him. And we lean on him to lead us through that minefield of temptation. So the way we resist the devil, and the Bible tells us that we are to resist him. James wrote, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So the way we do that, the way we resist them is to focus on Jesus, to stay prayerful, and to realize our weaknesses before the enemy has a chance to destroy us. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of, who, of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again and immediately a rooster 
So the heat gets turned up down here. They're not just speculating anymore. Hey, aren't you one of his disciples? There's an eyewitness here tonight. There's somebody here who actually saw him cut off the ear of his relative. Listen, that's got to leave an impression, no? If you saw someone lop off the ear of one of your relatives, wouldn't you remember that? Wouldn't you remember the face of the guy who did it? I think at this point, if there was a trial held, Peter is going to be convicted just on the very testimony of this eyewitness. But Peter's adamant here. He's not budging. He's saying that he doesn't even know the man. He wasn't there. He wasn't the one. He isn't the disciple of Jesus, and he doesn't even know Jesus. That's about as bad as you can get, isn't it? Denying that you ever knew Jesus. So listen, before we beat up too much on Peter, we have to admit that there's times in our flesh when in those weak moments of our life when we do the very same thing, when we deny Jesus. And maybe those exact words don't come out of our mouth, but by our actions, by our speech, many of us have denied Jesus. We may have even left doubt in the minds of someone who's watching us that we're even a disciple of Jesus, that we even know Jesus. I know I've been guilty of this. But what I love about this account of Peter's denial is that this story is really about God's great grace. I don't think God included this here, Peter's weaknesses, Peter's failures to embarrass Peter. I believe he included this account to encourage us. Because in a couple of chapters here, we're going to read about the amazing restoration of Peter. And throughout the New Testament, we get to see Peter living out that new life. Seeing Peter as a new creation. Seeing Peter as a Christian with spirit-empowered faith. In his own strength, there was failure, there was weakness. But empowered by the spirit, he is unstoppable. Nothing, even his death, would prevent him on sharing his faith and his witness with others. We're reading about it today. Yes, this is a story of weakness. It is a story of failure in the flesh, but it's also a story of God's grace. It isn't just Peter's story. It's our story. The rooster crowed. When he crowed, that was a reminder to Peter of what Jesus had said. But it's important to know that this is not the end really just the beginning. Luke tells us at that very moment, Jesus, as the rooster crows, Jesus turns and looks at Peter. They make eye contact. Peter's reminded of what Jesus said to him, and he runs out of the courtyard and weeps bitterly, the Gospels tell us. Peter's sorrowful that he's failed his Lord. There's a genuine remorsefulness here. He's fled the courtyard that night, and maybe as he's fled the courtyard, He's saying, Lord, I really blew it. I really messed up. <clears throat> he's got to be thinking to himself that Jesus doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. That he's really done it this time. That he's gone too far. He's really crossed the line that he cannot be used for the kingdom of God. He's remorseful. And, and listen, there is a difference between being sorry that you're caught in your sin being sorry that you sinned. You all understand that difference, right? We tend to get this exact same way when we stumble, when we sin. It's funny how we can bring sins up 
that we've committed years before we even knew Christ and, and feel guilt over those sins, can we? It can make us feel like God wants nothing to do with us. How can God use me in any way? Listen, Jesus died on the cross to wash those sins away. Just a, a, a probably a weak illustration, but an illustration of that is yesterday I dropped a couple a cup of ketchup um, at McDonald's at the grandkids at McDonald's on the floor. And it splashed up on my sneaker. So I took my sneaker to the sink and I washed off the ketchup. And guess what? The ketchup was gone. There was no trace of it left. The Bible tells us that our sin, which was once, once left a crimson stain on us, has been washed clean. That it's now white as wool. We've been renewed. You and I have been restored. We're new creations. We may stumble, we may even fall sometimes. But when we get up and we humbly come to him and confess our sins, confess our failures, the Bible tells us what? That he's faithful, that he forgives our sins, that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The story of Peter's denial isn't a story of failure. It's a story of restoration. And when we sin, it should never be a story of failure for us as well. It should always be a story of God's grace and his willingness to restore us no matter how many times we stumble. So don't ever let the denial, your denial of Jesus, leave you thinking that this is the end. That God doesn't want anything to do with us. Nothing could be further from the truth. God wants to restore us even in our denials. So that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. So that we have a testimony of how a Christian with spirit-empowered faith can have a witness for Christ for the rest of the so when we leave here today, I want you to leave here as that unstoppable, spirit-filled Christian. Don't ever think that the enemy has defeated you. Because listen, we know the end. We get to turn to the last chapter of the book. We know how this turns out for him. He doesn't defeat us. He is defeated. He was defeated on the cross that day. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever let him get in your head and think that you're not worthy. You're not good enough. Because in God's eyes, positionally, you're perfect. Nothing Satan can do, nothing Satan can say is our accuser to change God's mind, to make him see us any different. As we always say, there's nothing we can do to make God love us any less. There's nothing we can do to make him love us any more. He loves us just too much. He loves us too much to leave us that way. He's working in our lives. Even through our denials. Every life in this room is a story of restoration, a story of God's grace. And that story isn't over. Even when we leave this room, hopefully our stories will remain behind as a legacy of us. How God took this sinner who stumbled and fell, and through his amazing grace, his great grace, restored us, renewed us, and used us for his glory. Amen. Lord, we thank you for that amazing. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. How unbelievable that love is. And even when we stumble, even when we fall, you bless us, wash us up, use us. May, our, may we always be even in our denial, even in our weakness, even in our lack of faith, you are always faithful. You are always there to strengthen us, to lift us up, 
You are always there to restore us and renew us. Thank you, Lord. We ask you in your name.